Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. And returning back is my friend Steve. Welcome back, Steve. Thank you, sir. It's uh, it's always an interesting challenge when you're gone most of a month to get back into the swing of all the things that have been in progress without you. I, I bet. How, how how was your trip? How did you enjoy your travels? I I really love Germany. I was over in the the very western part, a very rural area, and uh, I really loved it. I loved being in the little towns and um, enjoying the people. The lot the Germans have this. Mm, reputation for not being so friendly but i didn't find that at all i think it's because there's a a misunderstanding of how cultural things work between english-speaking nations and the germans like for example small talk is not a thing and they look at you like why are you asking (laughs) right which we perceive as rude and they're just like what what is the what are you driving at Right. And so, yeah, I had a really good time. What I I always try to get my mind right when when I travel to other places, because it can be an enlightening experience. When you went to Germany, is there any chance? Could you just ask yourself, like, could I live here? Yeah. You know what? I think I could. Um, Especially if I'm not in one of the, the big cities. I'm not a big city person to begin with. So I think that was just apply across the board. But in the area that I was in, for example, it they have paved paths through the farmers' fields with signs telling you how far in which direction to the next little town, uh, and people just walk through that, and and everybody just enjoys being out. And like for instance, just a, a really quick little story. So my friends, they they recently had a baby, and the when you move into the town, they kind of get some information from from the public register that there's, you know, three people and one of them happens to be a baby. And they sent out a a person with a care package like, hey, welcome to our little town. Here's this care package. It tells you what kind of things are in the neighborhood for kids. And here's the resources if you're stressed. And like it was it was wonderful. Uh, I was there when they opened the door and, uh, you know, had a chat with the lady and super friendly. I was I was shocked. I'd never seen anything like that. Very cool. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed. I'm glad you enjoyed the Germans. I'm glad the Germans got to enjoy you. But I'm glad you're back. We missed you. Yeah, you know, I missed some of the tech stuff. That's for sure. I was uh, kind of rooting through some of the emails and uh, taking a gander at what what you had answered since I'd been away. Yeah. Well, let's jump into it, as there are plenty more to get to. So our first email comes in from Norm. Norm writes in and says, hey there, guys, I absolutely love the show. I actually wanted to call in live, but tonight's schedule changed a bit, and so I'll have to make do with an email. Here's my question, and apologies if it's a newbie question. I've been running WireGuard on my network for about a year now, and my experience has been great. The only caveat is to do with my modem. I have an optimum subscriber and use my own modem, an Aeros Surfboard SB8200. I also have a dynamic DNS in case my IP changes. About once a week, my connection to my home network fails. WireGuard connects and it shows data is flowing, but it's slower than usual. And it's sending more data than it's receiving. I have no internet access. I cannot access anything on my homeland. I can also confirm that my WAN IP hasn't changed. Though I'm using DDNS, so it should be fine. I can ping things on the network. I can also, I can't access anything that's accessible on the internet outside of WireGuard. When I call Optim, the Optimum, they confirm that I have full connectivity and nothing is wrong. The only thing that solves this issue is power cycling the modem. I now do this proactively once a week and haven't had this issue in quite some time. I understand this may be a memory issue with the modem. I use WireGuard heavily, so I imagine it eats up memory. Is physically rebooting the modem, my only option. Are there any remote solutions that I can implement from when I'm away from my home network for an extended period of time? 
Bonus and unrelated question. One of my client's websites, pictures stored at, and then he gives the uh, the uh, URL, doesn't load when I'm connected to my home network via WireGuard. I thought it might be an ad blocker issue, but when I'm on my home network, the website loads correctly. WireGuard is the prime suspect. Any thoughts as to what's happening here? Thanks for your help. Looking forward to your thoughts. Norm. So, Steve, have you played with WireGuard much? And if so, do you have any thoughts for Norm on what could be causing this issue? I have. It's not my daily driver because I was running into uh, little paper cuts here and there. My my first thought on the issue of not being able to connect to things is that the state table in the router is filling up. That's what that sounds like. Because if the state table is full, you'll be able to ping, but you're not going to be able to con- make any kind of consistent connections places. Okay. So I, look, pretend I'm five years old. What is a state table and how does it work? A state table is basically the way that the router is tracking various sessions. So a session is when there is a server client activity. So there's back and forth communication between two endpoints. And the router tries to take note of this in order to better optimize. And sometimes sometimes the state is also used for deep packet inspection and all kinds of other wonky things, which are probably not happening here. Mm. If your state table fills up, what will happen is anything that has a client server, so I send a I send a request for information and I wait for the information to come back. If the state table's full, that interaction will no longer happen. ICMP doesn't require the state table or so little of the state table that is is basically negligible. Mm. Uh, so my first guess is that it's the state table that needs to be flushed. What do you think? I really have no idea. Like you, I have I have played with WireGuard enough to know that it's very much has a bright future, and I think that someday it will get there. But we're, from 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 my perspective, there are too many user tools that are necessary integrating into LDAP and AD and all that kind of stuff that my clients are going to expect if I'm going to use uh, a VPN. So I use it personally. That's actually what connects my laptop back to my house, um, and I like it because it just spins up the tunnel i can do what i need to do and then it comes down but past that i don't have a lot of experience troubleshooting wire guard um it's interesting that if it's a state table issue that it only happens with wire guard isn't it well maybe but we don't know that it only happens with wire guard he this is just the place where where the um symptoms are presenting themselves mm. right because a state table can be full but the the like your desktop, for example. What if your desktop has all of the state and a new connection being WireGuard can't create a new entry in the state table? Right? We don't we yeah. don't have enough information to diagnose like this. This is one of those things where you have several hypotheses and you test them to to rule them out. It's the same thing with this um, image loading issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I have definitely run into this. I've never cared enough to to track this down. <laughs> um, so. It's one of those things that I would probably fire up the the web developer tools and watch the network and see what the network is telling me when it's trying to load this this image, and that might give you some indication. But yeah, it's unless you're dealing with this day in and day out, and and I can I can hear Linux Ninja screaming in the background that he probably knows the answer to this. But uh, you know, for those mere mortals of us uh, that aren't doing this on a daily basis. It's just kind of a set up your hypotheses, go and test them, and then see what sticks. So his next steps are might be maybe to upgrade that modem, see if there's a different model. Even if it's the same model, perhaps it wouldn't, or maybe there's a different firmware version for that modem that would resolve the, if it is a state table that's filling up. It's possible. You can, so... I have a a switch. I know I've mentioned it in the show before. It was the whole reason I got into automation where it's state table. The only way to clear it was, was to power cycle it. However, most decent machines, whatever they are, actually have a button in the interface somewhere to flush the state table. Mm. So um, recycling, like rebooting the box should also clear the state table. Um, it depends on it depends on the hardware and whether it locks up, right? The, this particular switch would lock up, and there was no getting into it after that. It just had to be power cycled. And you automated your way around the problem instead of 
yep. replacing the I love I it. got a smart plug. That's so funny. So. so Sleuth in the chat room says that he had a same the same problem with his consumer router and modem. They were separate boxes, but switching to OpenSense fixed it for him. He never did figure out why. Atypical says Intel-based modems have a known issue. You might want to check to see if it's Broadcom-based. So I, I would give you something to go to. I would, I would follow the following steps, Norm. I would try and update the firmware on the modem and see if that works. The second thing I would do is I would log into the interface of the modem, see if there is something, if you can probably be under NAT or firewall, and see if there is a, a state table and see if there's a way to flush it or if there might might, might say like clear cache, something like that. Uh, and you, you might try that. And then if that didn't work, you might try replacing the modem um, with another Doxus 3 modem that is supported by your ISP. Our second email comes in from Mike. Mike writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve. I'm a weekend war computer guy at best, so perhaps you could help explain to me what I'm missing here. I have an old computer with an AMD Phenom 2 X4 965 4-core processor, no graphics card. It's old, but it makes a pretty decent home server. When I had MB running on it, it would often crash when transcoding. I thought... That by running MB in a Docker container, a crash of MB would simply crash the Docker container, and the computer would remain stable. That does not seem to be the case. Even in Docker, when MB transcodes heavily, the entire system comes to a screeching halt, and I need to physically reboot the entire computer. Perhaps you could help me understand why the failures affect more than just the single container. Is there anything that I can do to keep these failures within the container? And if so, I can easily restart the MB container and have the remainder of my server remain completely stable. For what it's worth, in my MB Docker Compose, I do have MB to run as UID 1000, which is my primary user account on that machine. Not sure if that matters or not. I do notice that the user is running both the MB server, processes, FFmpeg before a crash. Thanks for all you do. I love learning from you guys each week. Thanks, Mike. So, Steve, you are somewhat of a container expert. What 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 are your thoughts? Why is this crashing? Should the container crash the entire system? So for the people that are not listening live, I'm going to give you a warning. Uh, you can probably skip ahead three minutes or so if you don't care about the explanation <laughs> for how containers work. No, this is uh, their opportunity to learn. Well, they can do. I'm just letting them know that uh, we won't be on to the next email for a few minutes. But uh, so we'll back up and talk a little bit about what a container is in reality. And then we'll get to why why a container like this running in Docker or even Podman, for example, can affect the host itself. So a container is a bunch of processes running together on a computer. They are a combination of Linux namespaces, and we've done a few episodes on Linux namespaces, and I've also done some writing on this. But the short answer is Linux namespaces are a way to sandbox various parts of the kernel. So you've got things like networking and, and all of those sorts of things can actually be sandboxed into their own little area where the host can't uh, get at them. Then there is a, another facility inside of Linux called C groups. And C groups are actually what limits resource consumption by uh, on a Linux system. So all Linux systems have C groups running by default. They just don't apply any limits. So what's happening in your box is that Docker is creating a container. I believe it's Docker that he's running. Docker is creating a container and it's using the sandboxing features of the Linux namespaces, but it's not applying any C groups to it, which means that by default, that container can use all of the resources on the system. That's just how that works because on a Linux system, every process gets put into the same C group by default. So there's a C group active. It's just an unconstrained C group that just lets anything take all of the resources that it needs. So it's basically almost acting as if it was running on native metal. Exactly. Exactly. So there are no constraints as far as how how it accesses the hardware, more or less. I mean, there's some caveats there. But the reason why your system may be unstable or may peg the CPU and become unresponsive is because Docker can eat up all of your CPU to the point where you can't even get a request in. So what happens is there's a queuing system for the CPU. And when a new command comes in, if it's so busy 
serving the other commands, it has to the system has to wait for what's called an interrupt, which is basically where something jumps in front of the queue to to handle a response. So if your system's going crazy and you hit control C and nothing happens, that's because that kill command is waiting its time to be processed. And there's probably just so much stuff ahead of it that it can't get in there. And that's what's happening. So there's a couple of ways that you can work around this. You can use uh, you can use systemd to launch your containers and have them restart. And the reason why you might consider something like this is because then you can actually start a container and apply C group limitations to them. So it's a four core processor. Maybe you want to only give MB three cores. Or we don't really know if if it's the graphics portion of the like the GPU portion of FFmpeg that's going crazy. Um, it's hard to say because that you know could be all inside of the GPU. It could be on. It could be in the RAM. We don't know where it is. But you'd start by um, making limitations. So it's a more advanced thing for sure. If you're not going to do something like uh, running a, a single node OpenShift or like a Kubernetes cluster, where they those sorts of things may be available to you in an easier fashion. The Basically, what happens is you can apply C group to anything that has a process ID. So if, if you don't want to start systemd and you just want to continue using Docker, you can totally hack around it by starting your Docker container, doing a PS, getting the, the process ID, and then applying C group to that process ID. So it's, it's really not complicated. It just sounds scary because it's something in modern computing, we're getting more and more away from the guts of, of how things work. And this is just getting back to those old days when you actually had to configure the XORG server or, you know, pick something randomly ridiculous that we used to have to do. Um, what is there any place that outlines? So I will have linked in the show notes at podcast.asnoashow.com. Steve did an excellent write up on redhat.com on uh, introduction to C groups. And it's in a, is it a seven part series? It is because there are a bunch of C groups involved there. Yeah. So we'll, ha we'll have a link for that for you at podcast.asnoashow.com if you want to read through that. But Steve, do you have any suggestions for a resource for somebody that says, okay, so he wants to constrain you know, this one Docker container, is there any place that just kind of has like an idiot's guide, monkey see, monkey do here? Now your Docker container won't use more than three cores. Honestly, I'd have to search for it. I've never looked for it because it felt that like managing individual containers like that has fallen outside of my everyday use case. <laughs> Steve goes, if I did it that way, it would take me a year and a half to do what I can do in five minutes. <laughs> So I'm sure somebody has an answer out there on the internet uh, and maybe even in our chat room, but I don't have an immediate answer for that. All right. Well, I'll get the, I'll send the squirrels running and uh, we'll see what they come back with. Our third email comes in from Keith. Keith writes in and says, Hey, Noah and Steve, I wanted to get your opinion on a cloud backup solution. And if I could encrypt my data before doing so, how would I do that? I've heard a few tech podcasts talk about Blackblaze, but I look into them. I noticed that they don't have a native Linux client. Um, so Steve, what are your thoughts on ways to back up data, uh, using Lin uh, Linux client, but using standard cloud services like Backblaze? So Backblaze in particular has their own protocol called the B2 protocol. And there are a ton of clients on Linux that, that support this protocol. So Backblaze has opted not to make their own client, but rather make, a I'm going to loosely say open standard. So Duplicity, uh, Restic, mm, Q Backup. There, there's a ton of them that implement this standard. And basically you just uh, plug in the, the information away you go. Uh, Backblaze has uh, tutorials for both Duplicity and Restic for how to, to do this. With regards to encrypting your stuff before you send it up there, there's... Really, the I think it's my opinion the best way to do that would be to GPG encrypt something. Uh, I don't know whether Backblaze does any kind of client side encryption or whether it just takes the it's just a dumb file store. So if when in doubt, you encrypt your your stuff and send it up that way. 
And you and, and then the other side of that is you know what it's encrypted with, right? Even if they did offer encryption, like, are you sure that the private keys are only on your system and don't ever leave? Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. I, yeah, even though I use Spider Oak myself, which says that they encrypt the, the stuff before sending it up, I absolutely GPG encrypt things that I don't want anybody to, like... Sure. If someone's really going to do an offline attack and, and really go to town on me, absolutely they'll get <laughs> in. But at the same time, it's not going to be the same thing as somebody at Spider Oak going rogue and just being like, oh, look what I found. Yeah. Yeah. Just search through stuff. Yeah. Can't say the same about Dropbox. Our fourth email comes in from BG. BG writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. It was great hearing about the interplanetary file system on episode 289. I recently defended my Ph.D. in geology, and a constant struggle in academia is access to journals. While open access publications are becoming more popular, open access publications cost easily $2,000, sometimes $3,000, and upwards of $8,000 in some cases. Therefore, many publications are submitted to journals for little to no cost. But the authors give up all copyright privileges, and the publications are behind an expensive closed-source paywall that requires subscriptions. Many universities are fighting back but by not subscribing to the ridiculous cost for university access and closed-access journals. But this leaves students with and researchers unable to access a lot of less essential journals, as he puts in quotes, such as many geology compared to medicine and engineering. My understanding with some of the cost for open access is the requirement for long-term archiving on servers. The staff to maintain these servers and the expensive permanent DOI handle with every article. New independent journals are testing the waters to see how to reorganize publishing, and IPFS sounds like a great way to help reduce the costs and maintain access for this information through decentralization. This could help open up the information to data to other countries, as well as for a lower barrier for submitting research. The IPNS sounds like the DOI handle system with a plethora of researchers and universities downloading journal articles and data. It would help to maintain long-term access to decentralized systems. I look forward to seeing IPFS develop and hope to test IPFS in the future. Thanks again for a great show, BG. So quick recap there, Steve. When we were talking about IPFS, one of the things I mentioned is it is so frustrating to me because my, my, my father works in medicine. And so literally we have, you know, going back a hundred or more years of information for all of the experiment and testing that has been done to get medicine to where it is today. And if you live in the United States and you have $50,000 to go to a university in the United States, then a lot of this is taken care of for you. You get access to essentially all of the knowledge humankind has ever accumulated into one place. The problem is if you are unfortunate enough to be born in a country like India, like my dad was, or China or Japan or basically anywhere other than the United States, Africa, and you're living on, you know, 60 cents a day and you walk six kilometers to get water and back, um, even $250 for a single journal article is ridiculous, and there's no way that you're going to be able to afford that. The flip side of that, of course, is if you say, okay, we're not going to charge that kind of money, well, that's fine, but then how do you pay for the journals? How do you pay to maintain them? So IPFS might be an option there. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, thanks for writing in, and, and congratulations on your PhD. That's fantastic. Hey, the number to join is 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. We have a couple of callers in the queue. You're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Um, hi. hi. I'm on Ask Noah. You are. Hello. You uh, are on Ask Noah. Hi. Um, my name is... Um, yeah, so I am wondering about an open source POS system for like a restaurant. Okay. Um, I'm wondering, like, are there? Do you know of a good um, POS system to use? So I'll be honest, um, like for like a fast food book. Yeah, absolutely. So there is there are some open source POS systems out there. So the one that comes to mind is opensourcepos.org, and they have a web based point of sale system. Um, that you can use. They publish all of their code on uh, on on GitHub, um, and it works. It's okay. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I have tried a couple of times to implement open source POS systems in uh, with clients, 
and I've never been able to successfully get one in place. There's always some uh, integration is really where it falls down most of the time, but there's always something that somebody is looking for that we've not been able to to meet with uh, with the different POS systems that were out there. The, the closest I ever got, and it wasn't truly open source, it just ran on Linux, was called uh, Squirrel, and it ran, actually, interestingly enough, on Fedora. They used Fedora, Fedora Core, for all of the little touchscreen uh, devices, and it came that way from the factory, and then you ran the server, and it would connect. It was Squirrel Systems, I think, was the name of it. Um, and that one we did ha- put into production a few different times and worked very, very well, um, but was not open source. So I would say if you're looking for an open source version, you're, you're probably the, the go-to one is opensourcepos.org. And um, it, it if you're just needing a... You know, it can do fairly complicated stuff. You can do, you know, products and inventory. You can do VAT and and and, and taxation, different different taxes for different, uh, you know, things, and uh, it supports multi-user and supports you know the loyalty cards and stuff like that. Uh, has multi-language, um, supports gift cards. So all of the basic things that you'd be looking for in a POS, I think you'll find. It's just it, mostly if you're getting into. Um, Integrations where you want it to spit things in and out and do all of those kinds of things, uh, not not so great. Um, but uh, they have a demo that you can log into, uh, and you can uh, log in and see if it would work for you. So we'll have a link for you in the show notes. Does that sound like that might be up your alley? Um, yes, yes, yes. Thank you for the recommendation and for the um, and for the information on your your experiences with the uh, with POS systems. Yeah, you. So, bet. Yeah, thank you. That sounds great. You bet. Go ahead, Steve. There's another one called um, Odoo that um, it looks pretty nice. It's open source, but it's not free. So I guess it depends on what what open source means to to you specifically. If it's open code, then it's up on GitHub, and you know they have a link right on their main page to GitHub and stuff like that. Uh, it's it's pretty uh, intense. Let's let's put it this way: they they can do a lot of stuff with this particular piece of software. It's it's also web based. It looks pretty fancy. Uh, I haven't used it, but it may be an option if if you're just looking for open source and you don't mind paying. Then there's that option too. The the other thing I'll I'll put in the in the in the category of of Odoo is you can buy devices pre-installed with Odoo. So if you're you know where whereas uh, yeah, so if you if you just want to order something or you want to buy something, um, they support like the touchscreen POS things. And I think they even have like a tablet version um, that you can use. Okay. Okay. That sounds great. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. So I'll have links for both of those in the show notes. And you can find those at podcast.snoshow.com. And whatever you wind up with, give me a call back. Let me know what works and uh, what doesn't work. I, I would I would love to hear. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. You're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hey, is it me? It is. Hello? Hi. Hey, Noah. How you doing? Good. How are you? I got got a Good, great. I got a two-part question for you. They're kind of... Uh, two different ends of the spectrum. My first was, you know, I'm kind of an old school IT guy and I'm used to doing things on my own and hosting things myself. And recently I got sort of caught in this whole, uh, you know, uh, RMM sort of platform thing. So I signed up for this, you know, large scale RMM platform and I was kind of really disappointed in it and what it could do and, you know, the costing and what features are available and what sort of is like ad hoc a la carte and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. What I was thinking of doing actually was sort of ditching that, ditching all that. And I was thinking about doing maybe like WireGuard private VPN tunnels to my clients and maybe using something like Mesh Mesh Central across Mm -hmm. the tunnels to sort of do remote, uh, remote, uh, desktop viewing, you know, remote PowerShell and command prompt, things like that. And I was just wondering, do you have any experience with anyone doing that or yourself using Mesh, Mesh Central in that way? Yeah, I, I, I've heard of, uh, I've heard of Mesh Commander or Mesh Central. I've not used it. Um, I guess I should ask Steve, do you have any, uh, firsthand experience with it? Not with Mesh Central, no. 
Okay, so uh, yeah, I've I've not done that. I will tell you that one of the uh, workflow, one of the client configurations that we support um, that has worked very very well. Now it's not for IT; they're using it for medicine. But the the general premise is you've got one medical provider that provides a given service to a bunch of other medical institutions, and so we set up individual VPN connections for each one of those other institutions to come back so that they can deposit uh, images. Uh, into into this this single provider, and so the concept of having you know an arm out to every client, and then having some sort of central system that you have that's reaching out over those tunnels and pulling stuff back in, that is something I absolutely have in in production and works very well. Okay, yeah, great. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll let you know how that how that goes on with me as I'm testing it out, and I'm going to see if I can deploy it at a test site. Uh, I don't know. Mesh Central seems to be like open source, and uh, it integrates with the Intel AMT uh, uh, management engine as well in, in mm-hmm. some cases. So, anyway, th- thanks thanks for that. Um, my second question was. While we're on site doing work, I'm sort of sick and tired of using cell phones to, to, to talk to people on site. I was wondering, is there a walkie-talkie that you could recommend or some sort of um, radio uh, that we could use on site doing installations either in larger buildings or even sometimes outdoors that works well in, in sort of like a city slash rural environment? Because I kind of think maybe having a walkie instead of uh, calling everyone on their cell phone might make more sense. Yeah, it sure does. So um, I'll start with the sane answer and I'll move to the kind of insane uh, uh, space. So the if you want to just get a walkie-talkie and use it, what you're looking for is something that works on the multi-use radio service or MARS uh, system. And that, it, it for, for the geeks among us, works in the frequency range of 151 to 154. And so it's essentially a small little spectrum that the FCC has set aside and said, anybody can use this. And so you can go purchase, if you, in fact, if you go purchase, if you go to Amazon and just buy like a quote-unquote business radio, it's likely going to be programmed um, for uh, the for the the Mars service. Um, if you want to, if you want to up it a little bit, uh, you can purchase a radio or a two way radio, and you can ha- apply to the FCC and get your own license uh, for your own frequency. And what that will allow you to do is nobody else will be able to use your. Uh, your your license, and so if if you want to if you want to do, I guess I guess either way, what I would what I would suggest you do is go to there's a site called uh, buytwowayradios dot com, and I have a link for you in the show notes. But if you want, regardless if you want to go the Mars route or if you want to have your own frequency, um, they're the place that you can purchase. Uh, the handheld radios, or you can buy the mobile radios. They also sell uh, repeaters. So if you get your own frequency, one of the things you can do is you can program the handheld radios to talk on one frequency and listen on another. So what that would what that would empower you to do is, so you're on site, you're talking with your crew, and all of a sudden one guy says, "I got to run to Best Buy and grab a SATA cable or an extra hard drive or a flash drive or whatever." So he leaves. He's three and a half miles away, four miles away, well outside the range of what the little portable handheld is going to do, and. You say, oh, shoot, you know what? We also need another flash drive. So you can pick up the radio, and because you're talking back to your repeater, which is maybe on your building or some central point in the city that you've you know negotiated with, the signal goes from your handheld up to the repeater. Now it can reach the entire city. And so it comes back down through that. Uh, that repeater back down to your guy that's mobile and you say, hey, while you're at the store, pick up two flash drives. Okay, no problem. Copy. And now you're good. And so what? Then this, so this is what we have. We have a repeater that's on a, a little 50-foot tower that's outside of our building. And so uh, the, the the our front desk people have a little radio that's there so that they can uh, so that they can they can communicate with that repeater. Now, truth be told, uh, in recent in in I would say in the last like two three years we've kind of moved away from radios and kind of gotten more into just doing everything through uh, Element and through our messenger because it doesn't the problem with radios is you <laughs> have to be very conscious and make sure that your entire team is very conscious about what you say could very well be you know overheard by open ears if somebody else is on a service call so be really cautious about the way the language that you're using and the way that you're phrasing it and the you know any off color humor you want to make sure that that isn't coming out over the air so 
I would keep those things in mind, but past that, yeah, absolutely. The, the other thing that the guys tell me all the time is when we're up on a scissor lift 40 feet in the air, 50 feet in the air, they don't want to take their $1,000 cell phone up there, right? But they'll take our little Motorola brick radios, and when those fall, they just bounce a couple of times, and then you pick them back up, and they're fine. I'm surprised you missed the golden opportunity here, Noah. I'm okay. I'm also surprised I'm going to be the one that says it, but you know that Element has a walkie-talkie mode, right? <laughs> <laughs> they are working on the walkie-talkie mode. It is not perfected yet, and I would not recommend it for production use quite yet. <laughs> Steve goes, yeah, that's what the arrest of element. <laughs> Does that help you? Yeah, that sounds great. I guess uh, those those Motorola's or whatever the ones in the 151 to 154 band those mm-hmm. those would do well in like sort of like a city environment. Um, they would be okay for that type of thing? Yeah, I think the lim- power limitation on Mars is like two and a half watts. So I would tell you that'll get you maybe a mile or two. It'll work fine for everybody all in one place. It will not work for, you know, one person is on one end of town and one person's on the other end of town you want to talk. It's it's just not going to do that. If you want to go that route, you you have to go file for a license uh, with the FCC. And it's not expensive. It's like $500. And I think that's for like 10 years. And if you go to, to my friends at, at buy two way they will actually, uh, walk you through that entire process. In fact, they'll do the entire process. You they, you can just pay them, the, give them the 500 bucks and they'll file for the license. They'll get your frequency. They'll program the radios for you. They'll send them out. They'll do all the stuff for you. Oh, okay. That sounds, uh, that sounds great. Yep. All right. Well, give it a shot. If it doesn't work or if you have any trouble, give me a call back. Okay. Thanks a lot, Noah. Yeah. Appreciate your time. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our fifth email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy says, hey there. After tinkering with a VM host, I'm looking to just run containers on the host, as KVM tends to eat a large amount of memory for the virtualization of the machines. At work, I use Kubernetes mostly. However, when I'm thinking about it, a single node machine running services, containers would Docker Compose be the best solution. I was thinking maybe a single node swarm. Really, all I need is the containers to start up automatically, and if they crash or if the machine is turned off, best, Jeremy. So, Steve, uh, sorry to keep bombarding you with container questions, but what should Jeremy do here? So I kind of alluded to this in the first um, the first caller or emailer, I suppose, that was talking about containers. System D can do this. So if all you want is to make sure that the container stays up, you can actually start containers with System D and tell it to restart always. There's plenty of guides online about how to go about doing this. If you are very familiar with Kubernetes, you know you could look into something like single node OpenShift if that is something that really floats your boat. It might be overkill for what you're hoping to do, but at the same time, it would be very familiar to you as a communication, uh, as as a Kubernetes container orchestration, it would be very familiar to you. So the easiest thing would be systemd. The next thing I suppose would be Docker Swarm, but you know, my, my friend Alex over at Self-Hosted would probably be a better person to talk to about that. Um, or, you, like I said, you could do one of the distributions that does um, single-node Kubernetes stuff. Very good. Our sixth and final email comes actually is from the questions bot, colon questions, or at col- at questions going Linux Delta.com. You can ask the bot. It puts the question right in front of our face. Sunjam did that. Sunjam asks, hey, no, and Steve, more domain types crop up every year. .network, .xyz, .info, .biz. I've owned my own domain for six years, and I continue to find myself in an endless hell when it's attempting to use it for email because it does not end in .com, .net, or .org. Time has not made the situation improve. Almost universally, these kinds of email domains are treated as invalid or illegitimate. My email domain constantly fails me. I sign up for utility companies for home, including the gas company and my own local ISP. If you use your own domain, you are a very real risk of becoming universally disregarded. Making things worse, Spam Assassin is now blocking all new domains by default, and then they... He links to a uh, a link that talks about that. Nora, Steve, is there any way that we can demand an 
overarching change in the accepting of which domains are considered valid for real world use or will I forever have to regret having a domain that I enjoy but can never use for production email. Thanks, Sunjam. So, Steve, have you had any experience? I mean, as the guy who used to run his own mail server, did you ever run into any of this? So I guess I'll start by saying I I did and I didn't. Uh, my wife actually has a, a email that ends in dot life. So we got shoes for dot life. Uh, and she was so thrilled with that. We ported that over to Proton Mail. And aside from one or two things that I am aware of, how about I say that? Since it's not my email address, I'm not aware of having problems. But that's mm. that is what she uses. And there's been one or two times where she's mentioned that this this page or that page wouldn't take her email address, but it it has been fairly infrequent. So I haven't really run into this. Uh, I don't think there is much you can do to demand or, or affect change unless they they get a, a large number of people who are getting emails from dot info or dot. Well, honestly, dot info and dot biz, those are kind of shady ones. Like they should be blacklisted anyways, just based on the people who have bought them. But aside from that, I don't think that most big companies care because I would wager that 95% of the people out there either have Gmail or Apple mail. So mm. they're just, call it a wash so in there are a couple of um i guess advocacy uh you know firms out there that claim to fight on your behalf uh for accepting emails from all domains as long as they have dkm and all that i have never used any of them and i did a little bit of poking when this question first hit our chat room to see if I have a friend that works as a full-time mail administrator and um, they had never had any terrible success. Essentially his answer to me was if I got an email from someplace like that, I would go, yep. And we get 10,000 more emails from spam. So I don't care what your little one special off cases go sign up for a Gmail account, some place that can track that person and know who that person is. And then we have a recourse because we've have an established relationship. Uh, and, and so I, I don't know that you have a lot of really good options. I will tell you this. I think over time that problem is going to improve. And here's why. With the whole reason you're seeing a bunch of those new TLDs come up is because there are more sites and more services and more things coming up that didn't exist before. And dot coms or dot net is already taken or squatted from, from some organizations. So I think. As more and more legitimate businesses start occupying .io and .x, I don't know if they'll ever occupy .xyz's, but but as they start to embark on other TLDs that aren't part of the .org, .net, .com, I think that in general this is probably going to get better. It is kind of disappointing that spam tools are doing this by default, but at the same time, I, I can kind of start to understand where they're coming from because if you, like Steve said, if you know that the vast majority of companies are going to operate on a .com and most of them are using their .com or .org or .net through Gmail uh, or actually really what I see isn't so much Apple but uh, Office 365, but if they're hosting their email services there, then you can, if you if you allow those things, 90% of the time, there isn't going to be a problem. 10% of the time, when there is some one-off weird thing, you just you know communicate with that person directly, and then they go sign into their Gmail account or, or whatever and send in an email, and then you carry on. So from an organizational standpoint, there isn't a whole lot of reason to open yourself up to what will contain a bunch of other malicious emails as well as fixing uh, fixing the, the, the good ones, so to speak. But I sympathize with you entirely. In fact, one of the guys that works for me had an issue where he tried to buy a product and he gives a he generates a unique email for every site that he visits, everything he does. And so it's just a random string of numbers and letters. They wouldn't process the order. He had a valid credit card number, had a valid address, had about like all of the things down the line are valid. But because his email address was a random string of numbers and letters and ended in at a num random string of numbers and letters, you know, dot and then a random TLD. They wouldn't sell him a product, and there's nothing he could do about it, so he just bought it elsewhere. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. 
AMD makes FSR 2.0 Fidelity FX Super Resolution open source and has officially published the source code under the MIT license. At the Linux Foundation's Open Source Summit in Austin, Texas, Linus Torvalds said he expects support for Rust code in the Linux kernel to be merged soon, possibly with the next release, 5.20. Microsoft's CBL Mariner 2.0 Linux distribution now supports kernel live patching and Pixie Boot. KDE developers have released 5.25.1. This release fixes a number of bugs, including improved support for multiple monitors. Firefox 102 is now available for download. Chaos Linux 2022.06 has been released with KDE Plasma 5.25 desktop. Endeavor OS Artemis launches with an ARM installer and a Linux 5.18 kernel. Pativi, the free and open source video editor for Linux systems based on GStreamer multimedia framework and written in Python, has been updated to version 2022.06. This release includes several new features, including object tracking and blurring. Zone, the Linux kernel driver for the Xbox One and Xbox Series X and S accessories, has been released with version 0.3. Flameshot, a powerful yet simple-to-use screenshot software, has released version 12. Linux has a new GTK-based 2FA authenticator app, aptly called Authenticator, and is distributed via Flatpak. Digicam, the free and open source multi-platform digital photo management application has released version 7.7. .7. GitHub has changed the license policy for GitHub Copilot. The transition to general availability means that Copilot ceases to be available for free. Interested developers will have to pay $10 a month or $100 a year to use the service with a 60-day free trial. GitHub claims they will offer Copilot for free for verified students and to maintainers of popular open source projects. And lastly, a government contractor has copied an open-source 3D printing design and successfully patented it. HangPrinter is a project to create an open-source frameless 3D printing setup that literally hangs in the air and is able to build much larger things than a traditional 3D printer. UT Battelle, a nonprofit joint venture set up by the University of Tennessee and the Battelle Institute, operating with the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, apparently decided to step in and basically patent the core ideas of the HangPrinter. The Hang Printer team has launched a GoFundMe to try to challenge the patent due to the cost in defending their open source project. Thank you, JT. He joins us sometime throughout the show and allows us a look at what happened in the Linux world throughout the week. You can find Linux Newswire here on the Ask Noah Show. We'll have all the links to the articles that he referenced available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is... FireZone. You can learn more at FireZone.dev. Talk about new TLDs. So FireZone is really cool. It is a self-hosted, secure, remote access firewall VPN appliance, and it's built from the ground up around WireGuard. So the idea here is a run-anywhere firewall for the work-anywhere era. COVID forced us all to go at home. And so what happens... When, you know, when you have a central office and you have a bunch of people working from home, it's pretty simple. Well, we need them to be able to get into the office, so we create a VPN tunnel back to the office. Well, what happens if there is no central office? Then what? Ah, plot twist. You have your infrastructure spread up over AWS, DigitalOcean, maybe you have a server at home, maybe you have a server at your friend's place, and maybe there's a server sitting somewhere in California. And you want all of those to reside on one little LAN network that is your quote-unquote business office network. Your remote employees who need to access said business office network are also remote and all over the place. What do you do? Firezone.dev. You manage your VPN and firewall server through their web interface, and you create clients and users. And so you create a client and... Put the put the the WireGuard client config on, let's say all of your servers, one on DigitalOcean, one on AWS, the one that's in your house, the one that's at your friend's place, and the one that's in California. They all connect to uh, the FireZone firewall appliance. Boom. Okay, now they have a, a connection. They're not necessarily accessible to the rest of the world. Maybe you have the firewall enabled on the DigitalOcean droplet so you can't get to that database server. You have the thing on AWS so you can't get to the web interface of your – I'm just making stuff up, but you know your, your NextCloud interface. But all of those are tunneled back to your FireZone firewall. Now you create users on the FireZone firewall, and they, with WireGuard, 
connect to the FireZone firewall, and now you've connected to your little uh, office network that didn't really exist and still doesn't really have a physical existence. But because there's all of these tunnels all over the place, the employees, once they're uh, VPNed in to the firewall, uh, to the to the FireZone device, are able to see the server at your house, the server in California, the server at DigitalOcean, the server at AWS. Uh, it, it, it creates a firewall for working anywhere. So there are some interesting ways that you can apply this, right? So the, the first is like, hey, I'm going to actually do work and I want a decentralized office. Okay, well, there you go. You, I mean, I guess it is centralized because wherever the fire zone thing is, is the central point. But the other thing that you can do with it is use it as a NAT gateway. So FireZone can be used as a NAT gateway, and what that does is it's a single static egress point for all of your traffic. And so this is really great if you're working in IT and you tell you know this company, hey, we need to be able to SSH into your service. And they say, well, what IP are you going to whitelist? Well, our team works from all over the country, so here's a list of 19 IP addresses. That doesn't go over so well. No, if you're using FireZone, you give them one IP address, and then all of your team's traffic is going to flow out of that IP address and into all of your client engagement, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, connection points. The other thing that you can do is you can set it up so that if you wanted a static IP address and you didn't want to pay your ISP for a static IP address, or maybe they simply don't offer a static IP address, well, guess what? Now you have the opportunity to go set up a FireZone appliance on DigitalOcean, on AWS, wherever you like, and you'll get a static IP address there. Then you can uh, funnel that traffic into, you could add whatever server you want to be able to access or whatever service you want to be able to access remotely. You install uh, you add that as a client to the FireZone appliance, and now you're able to get to whatever server is sitting inside of your home. Again, you've not uh, exposed anything through your home. You have you have to have a VPN connection into FireZone in order to be able to access this. So it's not publicly available or accessible, but you have a a static point of ingress now, and you have a static IP address, and you have a way to access those servers. So it's just a, an absolutely fantastic project that has that has come out of WireGuard. WireGuard uh, being a very lightweight, very robust uh, VPN, uh, up-and-coming VPN service uh, appliance kernel module, I guess, really. Uh, but paring down from open VPN of thousands of lines to code um, to just a few thousand is, is an absolutely fantastic achievement. And now you're seeing things like FireZone pop up. So you can learn more at firezone.dev. I invite you to check that out. Um, and again, really, really cool answer to a problem that comes up, I'd say, fairly frequently. The number of times that I've had people, clients, friends that say, Hey, I want to be able to access my file server. I want to be able to access my local media. And I can't do that right now. Because I don't have a public IP and I don't want to pay for it, uh, or I they're using some sort of dynamic DNS service, but that doesn't always refresh um, as fast as it might or or you might like, or sometimes there's issues with it or there's issues with the agent. And so uh, this is a way to build a network literally anywhere. So very, very, very cool project uh, that came out. Again, you can learn more at firezone.dev, uh, all built on WireGuard. Hey, the music in our ears, it means we're out of time. Wound down the hour yet again. We're thankful for you joining us. You can listen to the show live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. Throughout the week, we invite you to head over to our podcast resource page. You can find it at podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find all of the articles and references that we use to create the show. You'll find links to any of the emails that we've talked about, any of the references that Steve kicks out. Um, it's all there. So check out that page. You're only getting half the show if you're not visiting the podcast resource page, follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Evans. We'll see you next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.